1: Always stay connected with 99.9% reliable Sky Broadband. Switch your home to Sky Broadband today. See sky.ie for more.
0: It's Wednesday, May the 4th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. It's not actually May the 4th at all here because we're recording on the evening of May the 3rd for logistical reasons far too dull to go into. But I am delighted to be joined by two far from dull guests, our London editor, Dennis Staunton. And we're also joined by Slugger O'Toole's McField team. Given the nature of those two guests, it may not come as a surprise that we're looking at the upcoming elections later this week in the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Dennis will be focusing more on the Great Britain part and Mick on the Northern Ireland part. But I'd maybe just like to hear your your thoughts on both of them, should that arise. But Dennis, you're you're in Edinburgh right now. One of the things about the way they handle these things in Great Britain, these local elections, unlike uh, here in Ireland, is that they sort of stagger them and they do it bits bits at a time, which seems to me to make it very difficult to figure out both what might happen and how significant whatever it is that happens ends up being.
2: Yeah, it is. Uh, So in Scotland and Wales, all of the council seats are up. But in England, it's just maybe about a quarter of them. And so it does, uh, you know, depending on which year they were elected last. And so if one party had a good year, another party had a bad year, uh, or indeed, you know, whose seats are up. So at the moment, for example, in this uh, this year, uh, it's a lot of Labour held seats are up. And a lot of them are seats that Labour won in 2018 when they were doing particularly well. It was when Theresa May had lost the uh, her majority in the 2017 general election. She was in the throes of all the Brexit business. And so the Conservatives were doing badly. So uh, Labour is defending from a pretty high watermark in a lot of these seats.
0: So that then, is it fair to say, gives the Conservatives ample opportunity to spin a bad result into not looking quite as bad?
2: Yes. Yeah, so uh, obviously it depends on just how bad it is. But, you know, there, there have been kind of very, fairly lurid kind of bits of spin suggesting that they could lose 800 seats, lose 1,000 seats. Nobody thinks they're going to. Uh, the latest is that it would be a disaster if they lost 550 seats and they could be heading for that. But I think what people are going to be looking at is not so much the number of seats, but they'll be looking at particular places. And so, for example, uh, there's two things I think that people will look at. One is London, and there's a couple of uh, Conservative-held councils that there'll be a lot of attention on. One is Wandsworth, and the other is Westminster. Wandsworth, uh, the Conservatives won under Mrs. Thatcher for the first time in a long time, and they held it ever since, even through the the years of new Labour. And so uh, last time round... They were kind of neck and neck, and it could be that that falls to Labour. If you saw all four of the uh, Conservative-controlled boroughs in London falling to Labour, that would be a disaster. But even losing a couple of them wouldn't look great. And then what uh, you're going to look at is some of these seats in the Red Wall, places like Hartlepool, which uh, the Conservatives won the Westminster seat in a by-election last year, and that's currently held by a coalition of Conservatives and Independents and so if Labour can kind of make gains in places like that, that would be a sign that they were starting to do well. And so um,
0: the Tories won some of those red wall seats, for example, on the back of uh, a get Brexit done agenda, um, the popularity of, um, of of Boris Johnson. Um, leaving Brexit aside, I presume Boris Johnson isn't on all the posters of the Conservative Party now, is he?
2: No, he's not. Although, interestingly, if you depending on who you talk to, uh, he's not as unpopular in uh, some of those parts of the North and the Midlands of England uh, as he is down in the South. And so the whole party business has been a major liability for conservatives knocking on doors in uh, the home counties uh, but and in London. But apparently uh, they're saying at least that a lot of their voters are a bit more forgiving uh up in the red wall seats i think also a lot of those seats that you saw that you we talk about in the red wall they were starting to move from away from labor over the years so there was a kind of a demographic uh factor to all of this as well as just the brexit factor but there's no question that Boris Johnson is more unpopular than the Conservative Party is. And uh, the bad news surrounding him has been something of a drag on the Conservatives. And so uh, it will you know, be interesting to see just how much that plays out. So um, what the Conservatives fear is that voter intention starts to follow his popularity. And at the moment, the Conservatives uh, you know, are ahead in terms of voter intention uh, of him in terms of popularity.
0: And I want to talk, ask you in a moment about his leadership. But first, Mick, I mean, you live on what we don't call the mainland. Does the election there impinge upon your, your daily life much? Do people talk of it much, if, if at all?
3: Not really, because I'm in a part of the country where, as Dennis points out, there isn't any local elections here. I mean, it is properly weird because Cheltenham Boroughs, is not far up the road. They vote for half their seats one year and then the other half uh, two years later. So, uh, no, it hasn't really. Um, The bits and pieces I picked up here uh, just from talking to people is that I think it it is denting the Conservatives' credibility right across the board. And I think Dennis is right to say that certainly in the home counties or areas where they would have traditionally been very strong and also slightly more complacent because they haven't had to face real competition, I think people are generally out to give them a bit of a kicking, So I don't think this is all about the Tory labour fight, although when you look at the polls, that's where it seems to be nationally. I also think the Lib Dems have a few horses in this race as well, and it's certainly going to be interesting to look at their ability, perhaps in a future general election, to inflict real pain where the Tories are not used to uh, feeling it, because that will shape the overall outcome. I don't think anybody really believes that the Labour Party is going to do anything. Even at its most successful point, it's not likely to do anything more than lead a minority uh, administration. The gap that Johnson inflicted in 2019 is just too wide for that to happen. So the the, the fortunes of other political parties, I think, really does, uh, re- really w- will have implications, I think, going forward. And I think it's also a calculation here within the Conservatives that um, if there's going to be a bad election, they'd rather Johnson took uh, responsibility for it rather than any new leader. So... Um, so there's a whole bunch of really interesting calculations
0: in all of that so yeah exactly Dennis as 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 Mick says there if we think back just a couple of months ago when it was really quite a lot of serious talk about a heave and the getting the sufficient amount of uh, signatures from conservative party MPs to 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 prompt a, a leadership election part of the rationale of waiting for this election was to let Johnson own this and then let if they were going to replace him, to have somebody else with a a clean slate. A lot of stuff has happened since then, obviously, including the invasion of Ukraine. Where does Johnson stand now with this? If it is at the upper end of a bad performance, does that put all that stuff right back on the agenda? And indeed, are, are there enough people still waiting on the Tory benches, just waiting to get this over with to push that agenda?
2: I think it's going to be back on the agenda no matter what, because I think some people have been waiting for this, uh, you know, for the election to happen. And so I remember a former cabinet minister saying, this is to me, this is what we did with Theresa. We waited for the election. So we were able to then say, well, it's not us, it's the voters. You know, they've made, they've passed their verdict. And so, um, so in, you know, the, the conservative party, backbenchers They're kind of torn between ruthlessness and spinelessness all the time. And their spinelessness generally wins out. And that's the way it has, uh, you know, until now. And uh, so a lot of them are waiting. But there are a few factors. And I think the, the point that Mick made uh, about the Lib Dems and the fact that they're doing very well in some of those kind of, uh, you know, southern English uh, you know, constituencies is important. But one thing that Boris Johnson has in his favour this time is that an awful lot of that kind of seat is not actually up. And so one of the things that Conservative MPs always, and they fear, is that, say, they have a bad local election, a lot of their local councillors are lost, and those are the backbone of their constituency association. And they come complaining to them, and, you know, and they blame them, they blame the National Party for what's going on. And so he's probably not going to have quite as many of those uh, you know, having that particular experience just because their local areas are not up. I think the other thing, though, that's in his favor, the Ukraine effect is there, but it's kind of wearing off, I think. The other is just that uh, his m- most obvious successor, Rishi Sunak, is damaged. And he's damaged to the point where if there were to be a leadership election now, very few people at Westminster think he'd be a contender. Most think he wouldn't even uh, put his hat in the ring. And that's because uh, he was fined. As well. And so if part of the reason for getting rid of Johnson is about party gate and uh, Rishi Sunak was also fined for being at a party, even if he was, he seems to have been a fairly innocent bystander, that's not good. So once he's out of the way, you're then looking at uh, candidates who, for one reason or another, would be unappetizing for one section of the party for, uh, uh, or another. And so the person who's talked about a lot now at the moment in the last few days is Jeremy Hunt. Jeremy Hunt was the man who Boris Johnson defeated to become conservative leader. And there's a few problems with Jeremy Hunt. One is that electorates generally don't like to admit that they made a mistake. And so if you send them back the dish that they had already rejected and say, well, would you like to take a look at it this time? They generally don't particularly like it. So there's a good chance the conservative membership will say no again. And also Jeremy Hunt, he's a Remainer. He's uh, anathema, really, to um, you know the brexit end of the party. And so he's going to have his uh, detractors. On the other side, there would be Liz Truss. Lots of people, the more they take a look at Liz Truss, the less they like what they see. And they talk about the Defence Secretary, Ben Wallace. And uh, he's a name, apparently, that comes up on the doorsteps quite a lot. He's obviously, you know, he's a former soldier. He loves the army. He's... He's had a good war. He's very much in favour of sending more weapons. Conservatives like that. But the question as to whether he's really up to the top job is another one. So I think the thing this might be uh, Boris Johnson's best bet is that they look around and they think, we can't really think of anybody just yet. Maybe we leave him in place for a while.
0: And isn't the the reality that, I mean, a couple of the people you mentioned there, uh, particularly Wallace, you know, I mean, they've risen without trace quite rapidly, which was true of Rishi Sunak only a few months ago. And the whole Rishi Sunak affair just goes to illustrate the dangers and the pitfalls of pinning your hopes on somebody like that when something comes out of the woodwork because they haven't been tried and tested and interrogated under a microscope.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. That, uh, you know, and, and, and one of the things that, you know, what happened to him was that, uh, you know, when he was suddenly uh, tested and uh, his wife was under scrutiny in her financial affairs, uh, he appeared to find the pressure too much. And he reacted, you know, really quite testily. And I think that a lot of uh, conservative MPs looking at that just wondered if really, you know, when the real pressure came on, would he be quite up to it?
0: The upshot of what you're saying, really, is that they, uh, that the Tories may well be stuck with the man who some refer to as a, as a greased, uh, squirming piglet, uh, Boris Johnson, that he is, uh, escaped again like the Billy Bunter hero who he often represents.
2: Well, we'll see. I mean, the thing is that these results could be very bad. It could be, you know, it probably will be that there will be more fines. There may be more to come out about these parties. Uh, Sue Gray is going to have her report. So there's, there's plenty that can go wrong. There's also the other thing that can go wrong is that he's not very good at governing. It's a pretty chaotic uh, operation that he's got in Downing Street. So, uh, you know, every week is a week that something terrible can happen. And, uh, you know, and that, uh, you know, could lead to, uh, you know, to, to, you're know, simply to a head of steam coming. And so, for example, if you think about, if you think back to uh, when they came back after the Easter recess, Everybody thought the party game was over, that they, or that he had escaped for now. And as you were saying, like he's with one bound, he's free. And then suddenly he went into the House of Commons and made a total mess of it, and suddenly the revolution was on again. So it, you, know, it, you, you can never be sure, and as always with the Conservative Party, it's never too late to panic. They can panic now, they can panic next month, or they can panic just before the next election. But, uh, you know, so I think that Boris Johnson, even if he does emerge safe after these elections, he's never going to be safe for that long.
0: And he did a pretty unimpressive um, morning television interview this week, which shows that you know his political skills are not what they're they're cracked up to be a lot of the time. But I I want to ask you about something that that Mick mentioned there, which is the Labour Party and the really the uh, unclimbable cliff it faces if it would hope to win the next election. That the best it could hope for is some kind of minority arrangement, presumably with the SNP and maybe others as well. And given that you're in Scotland, I mean, as you said, in Scotland it's in, in you know all the councils are up. So it's a it's a real snapshot of what's happening in Scotland. Very different election from the Westminster election there because it's not first past the post. So, you know, the traditional parties of power like Labour can still have some kind of a presence there. Is there any prospect of this being a first step back to some kind of significant Westminster representation for the Labour Party there?
2: Yes, there is. Yeah, I think there is, because uh, nobody's thinking about who comes first, because that's going to be the SNP by a mile. The question is who comes second, and for the last few elections, it's been the Conservatives. And uh, what Labour is hoping is that, uh, and there are some signs it might be possible that they come in second place. They've got a, a, a new leader since last year, Anas Sawa. Uh, he didn't really have a chance to make much of an impression before the last uh, Holyrood elections. He'd only been in there a few weeks. But I think they're hoping that if they can present themselves as a unionist alternative to the uh, Conservatives, that that might be uh, part of, you know, the beginning of some kind of a way back somewhere. They've kind of, you know, you know they are very much a unionist party here in Scotland, and And, uh, you know, and so it is a question really of who the unionist voice is. And if they can say you can be a unionist and you can cherish the union uh, with uh, with the rest of Britain, but you don't have to uh, back Boris Johnson. Uh, then that might be an argument that that gains them some advantage. Uh, they're very, very far away, obviously, from uh, putting a dent in the SNP's dominance in Scotland. But nonetheless, if, for example, like if you look at the Westminster constituencies here in Scotland, an awful lot of them are marginals, and many of them are really, really tight marginals. And uh, Labour is in with a shot. In some of those. And so even if they were to add a few seats here, that could help to climb that mountain that Mick was talking about, which certainly from here looks pretty formidable. But then the first past the post system, it does turn pluralities into majorities. It actually, you know, big swings can happen. If you look at uh, Tony Blair's uh, biggest victory, he had Scotland, but he actually would have won even without Scotland. And so it is actually possible, even though it's a major stretch.
0: What do you think of that, Mick?
3: Oh, I think it's it's very possible. Look, at the end of the day, if Labour is to get back into power, and my best bet, now I could be wrong, I'm often wrong, if it is a a minority uh, administration, then in practical realities, Scotland doesn't matter that much in the sense that it can lose a lot of seats there or or fail to win a lot of seats and still be in that position, if it's able to uh, strike a a proper deal with the Lib Dems and the SNP. So it's not critical for them, but I do think it should. They need to begin to reframe the idea that the Labour Party is a unionist party is is one of the most effective narrative framings, that the SNP was able to round them all three, Uh, of the main UK parties into that one unionist corral. In fact, in Scotland, the Conservative Party in the 1950s was always known as the Unionist Party because primarily that's what it was about in Scotland. Uh, In actual fact, the Labour Party needs to reassert its social democratic values. And pitch itself as a champion of social democracy north of the border and then challenge the SNP from there. But that's a two or three stage process given how low they are in Scotland. And and, and stage one, they don't need to really engage in a, a major fist fight with the SNP and they probably shouldn't. So yeah, no, I think that's I think I think that's that that's right. And and you know, as Dennis says, Base camp is basically getting to be the second party of local government before they can push back uh uh, into that into that higher base,
0: and then for Labour themselves, because we focus more on the on on the Tories, Dennis. I mean, you've you have cast a a fairly cold eye on the Keir Starmer project from time to time over the last few months. How do you think it stands now, and does it does it is this an opportunity for it to to step up in the in the run up to which is probably what is probably the largest electoral challenge before the next general election?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think uh, you know they're ahead in the polls, and uh, you know Keir Starmer. I don't think you know his best admirers would say that he's a very charismatic figure, but the fact is that he has, uh, from the point of view of him and his circle within the Labour Party, he has detoxified the party to some extent. He's taken away some of the negatives. I mean, one of the problems that Labour had last time, and one of the reasons that the Conservatives did so well, was that even people who were unhappy with the Conservatives, they looked across the aisle, and many of them didn't like the idea of Jeremy Corbyn as Prime Minister. I think if you look at the uh, front bench of the Labour Party now, Rachel Reeves as shadow chancellor, uh, you know, Keir Starmer himself, I think nobody's going to be frightened of them. And so all other things being equal, if you wanted just to get rid of this crowd because they have been there so long, then uh, the idea of Labour is not so scary. And then to go back again to the Liberal Democrats... The liberal Democrats tend to do well when Labour is doing well, because, uh, you know, uh, if Labour is terribly scary, the argument that conservatives can say, which is if you vote for the Lib Dems, you're going to get Labour, becomes a scarier argument. So in a way, the Lib Dems need Labour to do well. And if Labour does well, then the Lib Dems will. And, you know, that all uh, becomes a kind of a, a virtuous circle from the opposition's point of view.
0: But given some of the scenario, the potential scenario laid out there by Mick, isn't there still the possibility of the Conservatives playing the same card um that they played a couple of elections back where they had post- or they had cartoons, I suppose, essentially, of Alex Salmond with Ed Miliband in his in his pocket, and that you could do the same with, with Nicola Sturgeon and Keir Stammer and maybe get some of the same reaction in English constituencies.
2: I think you can, but I think that what Labour would have to hope for is that actually you're getting to the point with the Conservatives and with Boris Johnson's government that the public is no longer listening, that you can say whatever you like about the other side or about anything else, but the public has stopped believing you. And uh, and so I think that, you know, in a way, it's the cliche of politics that, uh, you know, oppositions don't win uh, elections, governments lose them. And certainly this is one where it is very much, uh, this looks like a tired conservative government. It looks like uh, a, a government that's badly led and that is not very good at delivering on the big issues that matter to people. And you've got an awful lot of very, very bad economic news on the way. And it's just, you know, and it may be that this cost of living crisis is the kind of crisis that no government could survive. And if you have an opposition that's boring, but regarded as reasonably competent and you know uh, not too frightening then they you know they, things could just fall into their lap
0: now next tuesday we'll see the queen's speech as kind of classic ceremonial british parliamentary moment where the queen reads out the program of the government for the next parliamentary term is there any leaks about what we're going to hear in that or what, what we might see
2: yeah, I mean they're going to uh, you know, essentially. I think it's going to be packed with a lot of bills that are designed to appeal to the conservative base, and uh, and one of those is expected to be a bill about the Northern Ireland Protocol, and what this would do would be that it would allow British ministers to suspend entirely uh, the uh, Articles five to ten of the Protocol, which are the bits that basically put uh, Northern Ireland under EU single market and customs rules. They're the bits that require checks. And what this would do would be that it would be more uh, aggressive, in fact, than Article 16, which is pretty limited. But it would allow British ministers to essentially nullify the protocol and what it would mean would be that no matter how uh, the assembly elections turn out in Northern Ireland, this consent vote in 2024 when the Northern Ireland assembly is supposed to vote on whether to keep these parts of the protocol or not, uh, the Northern Ireland assembly, if they chose, would not be able to choose to keep the protocol because the Westminster... Trump's anything that happens, uh, you know, in Stormont, and they would be able to say, uh, "We, the government of Westminster, has decided that this thing is suspended, and that's the end of it." So, in other words, that the the elected representatives in Northern Ireland could not consent to keep the protocol, only to scrap it.
0: So we're back into the same hardball game that we were in a year ago with uh, Liz Truss's predecessor, uh, Lord Frost.
2: Yeah, because what the, uh, the hardliners in the government think is that the pragmatists have been in charge of the protocol negotiations since Frost left and that they have achieved nothing. And that actually it was while Frost was still there that the Europeans in October came up with their offer of various easements of the thing. And they haven't really offered anything much since. But that's partly because, of course, that the British just sort of pocketed those concessions and did nothing themselves. But anyway, so there, so I think that they, you know, like, in a way, part of this is, you know, you'll see, so you'll have the announcement in the Queen's speech that this is going to happen. And then you'll have, uh, sometime later, they'll draw up the legislation. That'll be debated in the House of Commons. It'll go to the House of Lords. They'll try to amend it. It'll go back and forward. And so this is quite a long process. And part of the idea is actually the noise, the threat of it should influence the negotiations uh, with Brussels. Brussels doesn't seem, uh, from everything that I've been hearing, talking to Brussels and talking to people in some other European capitals, they have no appetite for getting into one of these, uh, you know, uh, sort of displays with Boris Johnson. They've lost patience with it. They're just not going to engage with any of it. And so we just sort of see what, um, you know, what happens. But I think it's just going to be tensions increased with, to no immediate effect because you know, this is just the threat to do something right now. And so the Europeans won't immediately react. But when they do react, if, they, uh, if the British do actually suspend the protocol, then the political agreement at the European level is that they will terminate the trade and cooperation agreement. That would be
0: very interesting indeed. I do want to ask uh, Mick about that, but Dennis, I know you're in a rush, you have an appointment, so I'm going to let you go. Thanks very much for joining us and we'll take a break.
2: Thank you.
1: Never suffer the buffer again. Always stay connected with 99.9% reliable sky broadband. Whether you're streaming on the sofa. Gaming in the bedroom. Or swiping in the bathroom. Hey, get out of here! I said swiping. You'll never be without it. Switch your home to 99.9% reliable sky broadband. Availability subject to location requires Sky Broadband Ultrafast. For more info, see sky.ie forward slash speeds. 99.9% reliability based on time our broadband network works across our base.
0: So welcome back. Uh, Dennis has left us. Mick is still with us. Mick, I, I have to ask for your opinion on what he was talking about there just before the break. This new legislation which would give the British government at least the possibility of really ripping up large parts of the Northern Ireland protocol, which is such a big subject of the current election campaign in Northern Ireland. Well it is and it isn't I mean if you look at the polling
3: in Northern Ireland the protocol comes quite a long way down and actually some of the private polling that the UP's done itself shows it not in first second or third position but in fourth position in terms of their own voters so it's not huge I think Dennis himself just said there I think this is almost being put together as a threat we might do this uh, so building the you know the weapon of mass destruction it's not the same as actually using it. Uh, And in fact, actual fact, if the EU is going to do that, and I pick up the same degree of indifference towards uh, the British government's posturing on this uh, over there, um, I think from the EU's point of view, they will continue to use the joint committees as a way of finding ameliorations, of trying to push this thing to a point where at least in practical terms, some of the blockages on east to west travel, I think, are Uh, dealt with as best it possibly can be. One of the things, as we were talking earlier, as Dennis was talking earlier, one of the things that strikes me, especially around the lack of a viable counter-candidate to Johnson, this is partly because, perhaps with the single exception of Ben Wallace, the current administration is almost completely devoid of real talent, of people who are capable of pushing back in the way that some of even Margaret Thatcher's uh, cabinet were 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 wont to, um, and I I think therein lies the problem: It's simply the lack of capacity, the lack of talent to pull through some of these uh, threats that the that the British government is uh, is currently implying, if not actually making directly.
0: Isn't the problem with that that according to quite a lot of commentators, and I'm not saying that that you necessarily agree with this, but that this is a very important election. And I know people always say that, but that, you know, the current post-Good Friday Agreement, post-St. Andrews Agreement dispensation may be reaching the end of whatever kind of road it had in the first place. And, and if that's the case, that's going to require some heavyweight politicians to move on to whatever the new dispensation would be. Yeah,
3: but it will take... From the point of view of the Good Friday Agreement, if we're going to revisit any of that, it's going to take some muscularity coming from two directions, not just one. I think we have, I, I think for the first time in a long time, real political presence in government buildings in in Dublin on the North South thing. I think the, the the Shared Island Initiative, which was initiated, um, you know, with the onset of this new administration, I think showed a seriousness about uh, the Republic's. A responsibility for Northern Ireland, but unless there's a a viable partner on the other side of the Irish Sea, I don't see where the political capital comes from uh, to affect that kind of generalized reform that people are perhaps speculating about. Is it the most important? Well, yes and no. I I think what's at stake here appears to be the office of first and deputy first minister, uh, and certainly what's being offered by Sinn Féin is the possibility of knocking the DUP off its perch. That excites two different sections of the community. One, obviously, Sinn Féin loyalists, Republicans, or just plain nationalists who fed up with the idea uh, implied by the DUP that they're incapable of holding down senior office. Uh, But it also, uh, I think, appeals to a lot of liberal um, ulster as well, People who perhaps had voted DUP in the in the past, Ulster Unionists in the past, but now really want to signal complete dissatisfaction from the DUP, uh, and so we're seeing in today's poll in the Irish News eighteen point five percent for the Alliance Party, an exact on exact level pegging with the DUP. Now there are a lot of problems with that poll. It was taken 10 days out before uh, polling day. So in other words, out of sequence with the polls that we've seen so far, there's a 3.1% margin of error and 17, a full 17.2% of people who say they haven't made their mind up. Now we all know about the the shy Tory vote. uh, and, and So there's a real possibility that there are people who are keeping their light under a bushel. And we may find out that this historic election is yet another damp squib. However, I do think the fact that the Alliance Party, who only got 10, 9% in the last um, assembly election, are now even polling somewhere between 15 and 18%, I think that's a real signal of dissatisfaction amongst people in the middle who are basically saying a plague on both your houses.
0: Well, indeed, and I do always wonder, there are certain factors about Northern elections that I, I do wonder about. One is when broadcasters go out and do Vox Pops on the street. It appears everybody wants orange and green to get together and they're sick of this old thing and they want people to focus on, on, you know, the economy and the NHS and all that kind of stuff isn't borne out in the polls. And again, in Northern Ireland, 17% of people are going to make their minds up in the next two days. I don't believe that, do you? No, I don't. It's too Well, 10 days out,
3: I do believe it. Three days out, I absolutely don't believe it, and that's why I think the Servation poll, which puts things a lot more tightly, as Sinn Féin on twenty-two percent and the DUP on twenty percent, I, I you know that's much more like where we're actually heading. So I, I would I would expect to see a tightening in the polls, uh, whether it's as tight as two percent, it might be it might be four, it might be uh, it could even be five. But with the way STVPR works, it depends on which of the big blocks gets the most uh, votes because it's through transfers, I think, uh, that this is finally going to be uh, uh, decided. And polls are notoriously bad at predicting where those transfers go. What we have in the north, though, is this convenience of saying that mostly, certainly between the TUV and DUP, where I think as a strategy from the outset, the DUP have positioned themselves as close as they can get to the DUV. Because after the TUV, after you voted TUV and you've got your little protest in about just how appallingly incompetent the DUP has been, many of them say that they're going to vote, they're going to transfer back into the TUV. So the, the DUP has a bit of a power pack. It really depends on turnout. Are those people actually going to, the 17.5 is that indifference? Is it shyness? Uh, or, or, or what is it? So uh, I'm not s- cynical, but I'm very skeptical about these grand uh, introductions into into uh, these ground shaking um, elections. I think if we were genuinely there we, we would we would begin to see some evidence on the ground. Really what we're seeing is a bit of an eruption in the middle, but perhaps not enough. To unsettle the two major factions, whereas if you've got enough two-seat con, um, constituencies, that really ought to be able to be enough for you to take it—a huge loss in vote share, but still retain the seats and
0: um, repel the uh, all-alliance borders. And that's extremely interesting what you say about the servation poll, which is, you know, much closer, only a couple of percentage points between the two, the two largest parties. And looking at Slugger O'Toole's constituency profiles there today and some of the analysis of the way that the DUP have have a stronger stronghold, I suppose you could put it that way. Um, they, it's harder for them to lose some seats. Sinn Féin have a, f- a few seats at risk, it should be said, and the challenge of gaining more seats is looks insurmountable in most cases. So their best case scenario is to come back at around what they were at in 2017. It's very possible that they, that they won't. So do I take it from all that that it's not out of the question that the DUP could still remain the largest party after Thursday? When all the seats are... Kind of thing. Yeah, when, everyone, when all the seats have been counted, all those transfers have happened. Those last seats have broken, you know, in their favor. Um, I mean, one of the things that fascinates me as a, as a PR, STV addict, based upon my observation of Southern uh, elections, is the fascinating way in which, you know, sectarian headcount pl- can play out in the battle over a final seat. Let's say it's a three-way fight between Sinn Féin, the SDLP, and Alliance. It's very important who goes out first. And it's all those totally that, things. yeah. Yeah, and it's, you know, look,
3: at the end of the day, uh, not in this particular uh, poll, but and I think a lucid talk poll, if you totter it up the proportions, um, you got something like 43% unionist vote with facing a 36% nationalist vote. If if the transfers just stay in-house either way, um, then, you know, all the DUP have to do is to keep Sinn Féin within about 2 to 3%. Uh, And because they have a sump of transfers, what we the little research we've had into transfers, we know that Sinn Féin has had its classic problem in that it's not transfer friendly, has a huge core vote. People are utterly devoted to it. You know, out of the um, I think the figures, it's 19.9 percent core vote for um, for. Sinn Fein and the next closest, the DUP and alliance or something like twelve percent. So everybody else has got a soft vote that relies on transfers and is capable of attracting transfers. Uh, Sinn Fein not quite so much. So in those final straights, I think it's gonna be a nail biter. And <laughs> uh, you know, I, I'm on RTE on on the on the early shift with the poets who have to make stuff up because we don't have enough data. Um, so I, I'm Quite possibly going to have quite a lot of egg in my face by the time the early hours of um, Saturday morning, when the, when the electoral office tells us they're determined to get everything finished on day one.
0: And in a way, this election, more than any other ones, has come down because because this is a live question now of who is going to be the first minister and of course we hear that this is a purely symbolic position well you know you know symbolic stuff doesn't really matter to the people of northern ireland we all know that don't we um that it's it's going to be this it's going to be like a penalty shootout really in a way yeah and this has been a sort of
3: a, a sort of damocles over our heads since since uh, since the st andrews agreement when according to uh, common knowledge it was the dup that set it up like this so that they can continually set up what is effectively a false argument with their partners in government for the last 15 years. You know, there has never been um, a government that hadn't got a Sinn Féin DUP uh, joint first minister. So the, the symbolism is important. The semiotics are really important, but the reality is on, very unlikely to change unless some other interloper can get between the, the, this really... Bad, bickering old couple that never seem to be able to get it together. Never seem to be able to put together a, cons- you know, a consistent program of government. And I and I and I think that I and I doubt ever will will do with the inclusive institutions that we've got. That would take the kind of political capital that we talked about at the beginning of your question. Where, where you've got a, a, a UK administration and an Irish administration that are prepared to grab this thing by the scruff of the neck and say, lads,
0: you've had 22 years, this thing isn't working, how do we fix it? So given that, you may not want to answer this question, by the way, Mick, but given your <laughs> your analysis there and your your clear exasperation, I think it's fair to say, with this you know, duopoly, um, which is the least worst option for you, a Sinn Féin First Minister or a DUP First Minister? I'm totally indifferent. I think uh, the advantages of having a, a Sinn
3: Féin first minister is the sword of Damocles will disappear, like some kind of, um, you know, it, it will be endured and then it will be got over, right? Because it will just be, it'll be something that's happened and the world hasn't fallen apart. So in some respects, I slightly incline towards saying that a Sinn Féin first minister Uh, would be useful to prove the principle that this is indeed a a joint First Minister's office that can no longer be held over the heads of the Northern Irish population, um, and and therefore we can no longer be denied um, a proper pitch for government going forward. Um, Having said that, that's the long-term view. The shorter-term view is it will probably uh, lead to at least a six-month hiatus. New legislation allows... Uh, the parties at least that long to form a government. Um, and, and you know, at a time of a cost of living crisis, which is exercising every administration across Europe, um, that's something in a way really that we shouldn't have to endure. But if we have to endure it for the longer term, I mean, I tend to look at this as this is really Northern Ireland going through its adolescent phase in trying to bring forth a functional democracy. Uh, and if, if it takes us a little bit further along that road, then, then, I, then, I, then I, I'd i be happy with the Sinn Féin First Minister, because it, because in any, it, there is no functional or material downside to that, just the, the shock it's likely to deliver to
0: unionism. And just a final nuts and bolts question to you, for political junkies who are listening to this and are saying the count is happening on Friday. I gather some efforts have been made to speed up the counting process this time, Do you have any sense of when there, we're hoping to really start getting a clearer picture at what point during the day that that might be?
3: Well, usually we get a clearer view on the Belfast constituency. So and it's really the big rural constituencies like Fermanagh, South Tyrone, West Tyrone, North Antrim, where we have to kind of sit around and wait for those uh, results come in. But, but, you know, we should we should get a better sense of where, where the greater Belfast area is. What that uh, alliance um, uh, surge looks like in the in the in the early polling, um, so I, I would hope by sort of seven eight nine o'clock in the evening that we've got a, a fairly good idea of really where the core votes are for DUP and Sinn Féin. Um, but I really do expect it to go down, uh, go down, go down right down to the wire, which could be four or five o'clock in the morning for for the bigger constituencies on
0: Saturday. Something to look forward to, but also you can look forward to hearing Mick and the poets uh, using their oratorical skills to uh, conceal the fact that they don't have any information earlier in the day on, on RTE. So I look forward to listening to that myself. Mick, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks also to Dennis Daunton for joining us earlier and to our producer, Jennifer Ryan. You can contact us with any views or questions or points that you'd like to make at Politics at irishtimes.com But until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening.